For two days, Israeli police have raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Israel says they were going after Palestinians, stockpiling rocks and fireworks. Soon, militants fired rockets into Israel. The latest from the region coming up. Today is Thursday, April 6th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear from an OBGYN in Wisconsin about what doctors and patients there have been dealing with before this week's Supreme Court election. You know, I decided that the best thing, the safest thing for me and my family was for me to work two or three weeks a month in Minnesota. Gannett owns dozens of newspapers in Massachusetts, is considering selling off some of its U.S. dailies. We'll hear from the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard on how democracy suffers when newspapers shrink or go away entirely. It's 4.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Hundreds of demonstrators are protesting outside of the Capitol building in Nashville at this hour as the Tennessee legislature prepares to vote on the expulsion of three Democratic lawmakers. The Republican supermajority is expected to remove the members for taking part in protests calling for stricter gun reform legislation on the House floor last week. Alexis Marshall of member station WPLN reports from the State House. Among those protesting the expulsion was ninth grader Asatira X. After last week's shooting at the Covenant School, she says she's scared of going to school and shouldn't have to worry about active shooters and barricading classroom doors. She's frustrated that the legislature is punishing the representatives who voiced her concerns. I feel like it's just a big, like, middle finger to us, you know what I mean? Because it's just like... You're really eliminating these people because you're just speaking out on what they believe in. Other protesters called moves like this fascist. They say shutting down dissenting voices threatens the state's democracy. For NPR News, I'm Alexis Marshall in Nashville. The National Security Council has released a summary of its lessons learned from the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan a year and a half ago. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the assessment places a lot of the blame on the former Trump administration. Transitions matter. That's one of the key takeaways of the after-action reviews on Afghanistan. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby points out that it was the Trump administration that made a deal with the Taliban to withdraw U.S. troops, and if it had a plan, it didn't share it with President Biden. He came in with a certain set of circumstances. He had no ability to change. He had to deal with it based on what he inherited. Kirby defends the decision to end America's longest war, and he dismisses criticism of the chaotic scenes at the Kabul airport, saying there was no way to do this easily. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The United Kingdom's competition regulator says it's examining a proposed Amazon acquisition. Phil Marks reports the takeover target is a Massachusetts-based company that manufactures a robotic vacuum cleaner known as the Roomba. Britain's Competition and Markets Authority is seeking comments from any, quote, interested party in the $1.7 billion potential takeover, including any potential evidence that the deal might reduce competition in UK markets. This could prompt a more extensive investigation as antitrust campaigners warn that Amazon could soon dominate the market for smart home devices with even greater access to consumers' lives. That's Phil and Marks reporting from London. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up two points, the Nasdaq up 91. 
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is receiving the largest award it's ever been granted from the federal government to help people who are experiencing homelessness. The $42 million from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development will go to 14 nonprofits to help people find and pay for housing. The mayor's office says last year the city housed more than 2,400 people who were experiencing homelessness. Nearly the entire Massachusetts congressional delegation wants the new owner of Silicon Valley Bank to renew its commitment to financing affordable housing in the state. The North Carolina-based First Citizens Bank is in the process of taking over the failed financial institution. More than 800 low-income homes being built in Massachusetts were financed by Silicon Valley Bank. In a letter to the bank, 10 of the 11 delegation members say it's critical to avoid any disruption in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. Boston-based DraftKings has lost its bet to offer wagering on this year's Boston Marathon. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission today voted down the company's request to let people bet on the event. Race organizers say they were concerned giving approval with less than two weeks to the race would give them insufficient time to assess how wagering could potentially influence the race. Commission Chair Kathy Judd Stein says it was important to consider those concerns. One of the very critical components of our approving events is to make sure that the governing body can ensure the integrity of the event for purpose of outcome and betting. DraftKings wanted to let people wager on the winning times and athletes from a list of top competitors. And Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan is concerned tech companies do not have enough employees to monitor rising hate and harassment in online games. The Westford Democrat is asking the Federal Trade Commission to provide information on what the agency is doing to hold video game companies accountable. An Anti-Defamation League report has found online gaming companies do not have enough resources to adequately police its users actions in voice and text chats in their games. In the forecast, all the way up to 61 degrees today, still a few bright spots around, otherwise just a lot of clouds that should continue through the night tonight. A few showers possible overnight, lows about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, topping out in the mid-50s, so a nice day and an even nicer weekend ahead. Saturday, mainly sunny, breezy, cooler, about 48 for a high. Sunday, sunny skies, just below 50. 61 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Floody, though in Culver City, California. For two days in a row, Israeli police have raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Israel says they were going after Palestinians stockpiling rocks and fireworks. Scenes circulated around the region showing police using batons to beat people inside one of Islam's holiest sites. Soon, militants fired rockets into Israel. A few came from Gaza, many more from Lebanon. And that's important. We'll get to it in a moment. The region is on edge. Violence is expected to continue. The question is on what scale? NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us from Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Adrian. Can you explain how all of this has snowballed from a crisis in Jerusalem to a a crisis on multiple fronts? Yeah, well, Ramadan and Passover happened to coincide this year. And there was a fringe Jewish group that was calling to revive this biblical tradition of a Passover goat sacrifice 
at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. This is an ancient site. It's revered in Islam, but also in Judaism. And Palestinian activists were gathering overnight at the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, to defend it from this uh, fringe group. Israeli police then raided the mosque to to break up the group of activists, and sparks were literally flying inside the mosque. Uh, inside the mosque, uh, Palestinians had had stockpiled fireworks. They were setting off fireworks, and Israeli police beat Palestinians. This police brutality was caught on video. Um, it spread on social media in the region and sparked a lot of anger. And so uh, Israel is actually blaming Hamas, the Hamas militia in Gaza, for for helping spread these images on social media and trying to ignite tension and violence. Uh, so we saw militants in Gaza then fire rockets onto Israel's south. What's unusual here, though, is that uh, militants in Lebanon also fired a few dozen rockets on Israel's north. So Israel is now facing threats on both its southern and northern borders. Uh, Tell us more about the significance of rocket fire from Lebanon and and who was behind that. Yeah, it's significant. I mean, this is a few dozen rockets launched from Lebanon, uh, the biggest barrage from Lebanon onto Israel since uh, the two fought a war in 2006. Uh, There are a lot of social media videos out there of Israelis enjoying enjoying a, a day off for Passover, watching these trails of smoke. You can hear this this video now. It's a video of of, uh, many Israelis watching this anti-rocket battery that Israel has shooting down rockets mid-air. Now, Israel is blaming Palestinian militants in Lebanon for firing the rockets, and they say Hamas orchestrated this. But that with something of this scope, Hezbollah, uh, the the Lebanese militia in Lebanon, would have to have been aware of this. And they're also considering the possibility in Israel that there was involvement by Iran, which is a main backer of Hezbollah. Now, these rockets did not kill anyone. Uh, It's not a major military threat. It's a lot more about sending a message, and it, and it raises a lot of questions. Um, is Israel, uh, are Israel's enemies trying to unite efforts to launch a multi-front attack on Israel as Israel is consumed by this controversy over the government's uh, attempts to overhaul the judiciary? Uh, what might be the calculations that Israel's leaders uh, and the militants make as they uh, take action in the next hours or days? Yeah, I mean, Israeli security chiefs uh, are meeting, security cabinet meeting, and there is a lot of pressure from within the Israeli public to respond somehow. Um, Now, officials have a lot to consider here in Israel. Who is responsible? Is it Hamas? Is it Hezbollah? Is it Iran? Where do you respond? Do you respond in Gaza or Lebanon? Uh, Do you respond during these sensitive days of Ramadan? Israel and a lot of the players here in the region do not want to be dragged into an all-out war, but they do want to send a message uh, that that they no one is going to be backing down. We're going to have to see how Israel responds and how these other groups respond if this uh, if this escalates. I've been speaking with NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen has left the U.S. after meeting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Her visit, which was officially called a, quote, transit, triggered warnings from Beijing. That has put residents of a strip of small islands belonging to Taiwan, but just miles from China's mainland, at the center of these growing tensions 
again. NPR's Emily Fang and John Ruich bring you this story and a warning. You will hear sounds of gunshots. Local Taiwanese politician Cai Ji-yong still remembers when his home on Kinmen Island was a battleground. When I was a child, I experienced China and Taiwan bombarding each other on alternating days, and you had to take cover in bomb shelters. War is really merciless. The shelling stopped in the late 1970s. Kinmen has since been demined of remaining explosives, though Taiwan still maintains a military presence on the islands. You can hear behind me the crack of artillery practice, which is just a reminder that even though a lot of troops already left Kinmen, some of it's still an active military base because of its proximity to China. But it's also a popular tourist site these days. Yet, because of rising tensions with China, the threat of war now feels very real, again. COVID shut down the ferry connections between China's shaman and Taiwan's kinmen. And then, with the media reporting on the war in Ukraine, us kinmen residents can't help but think about previous battles and bombardment from China. We're really afraid we'll face war again. This is kinmen native and opposition party politician Chen Yanghu. He thinks the only way to avoid conflict with China is to strengthen economic ties. That's why this year he proposed to turn his hometown into a demilitarized zone, kind of like the Korean DMZ, a strip of neutral space between North and South Korea. That way, both sides have equal status. Only that way can you gradually build up a space for shared livelihood and perhaps even joint administration of both kinmen and China's shaman, so the two can be more connected to develop and protect kinmen. Chin holds a Taiwanese passport, but he proudly tells me he sees himself as culturally Chinese. Kinmen residents own 20 to 30,000 houses in China. Because of family and ethnic ties on both sides, we already feel like one big family. None of this sits well with Taipei, where the ruling political party, the DPP, is highly suspicious of China. Here's DPP politician Chen Xianzhong in Kinmen. Taiwan would have to remove troops from Kinmen if we had a DMZ. But even if China agreed to remove proportional amounts of troops on its side, that would still leave Kinmen vulnerable. Controversy over the DMZ proposal reflects Taiwan's fraught identity politics. Most residents in Kinmen advocate for much closer ties with China because of a shared cultural identity. But that's not how most people in Taiwan feel. About two-thirds say in the latest poll that they feel Taiwanese, not Chinese. But these nuances fade just offshore in Chinese waters, where my colleague John Ruwich is on a tour boat. In the background there, you can see an island which is run by Taiwan, administered by the Taiwanese government. It's just a couple of miles off the coast of China. We're on a tourist boat now, and you can see it in the background there. There are daily tours from China. It only takes about a half hour to get within a few hundred meters of Taiwan-controlled territory. People like Luo Guangmin travel from deep inside China for a look. Kinmen Island is so close to the mainland. Why hasn't it been reunited with us sooner? Wang Yun from southwest China is part of the same tour group. We think the country should reunite because we are all Chinese. If we reunite, it will lead to a good life under our party's care. 
Despite the rising tension across the Taiwan Strait, back on land in China, there are still plenty of people from Taiwan looking for opportunity. Lai Lai was born and raised in Taiwan and moved to Xiamen nearly six years ago for work. Actually, after coming to Xiamen, I realized, eh, it's pretty similar to Taiwan. They speak the same language, which I can understand. The pace of life is similar too, she says. In Xiamen, Lai's taking part in one of many programs backed by the Chinese government to attract Taiwanese youth and win them over. The one she's at is like an incubator for cultural products, stuff like T-shirts or coffee mugs with cool designs. And she's come to the conclusion that the future for Taiwan is with China. Actually, the environment in Taiwan has really been shrunk down to something quite small. So if you don't seize the opportunity to do things with the mainland, you'll just be stuck in Taiwan. Lai says her family doesn't get it, and she thinks they've been misled by the media. They even told her not to come home over Lunar New Year a few months ago because they were afraid of the coronavirus after China dropped all its restrictions and she tested positive. She says she had not been back for three years, and it hurt when they told her she should stay away. For Lai Lai, Xiamen is now a kind of home away from home. She's even written songs about it, which she and her colleagues sing. I actively have called upon my friends in Taiwan to come to the mainland to visit. Walk around, check things out for three or four days, and you'll see that things are different from what you imagined. Kinmen across the water and Xiamen were front lines for past battles. Now they're the front line in China's battle for hearts and minds in Taiwan. I'm John Ruich in Xiamen, China. And Emily Fang in PR News, Kinmen, Taiwan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, California residents are still recovering from this winter's intense storms. Climate scientists say the extreme weather is just a taste of what we can expect in a warmer world. And in about six minutes, Bob Mandela's review of a film banned in Pakistan, Joyland. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, worcesterart.org. Stocks ended the day higher, just barely for the Dow, though. It was nearly flat. S&P rose more than one-third percent. NASDAQ grew by three-quarters percent. The number of people seeking unemployment benefits in Massachusetts is rising. The Department of Labor reports that last week, more than 15,000 people in the state filed initial claims for unemployment. That's up 8 percent from the week before. The rise reflects a national trend. We have all the day's business coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 19 past four. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. And Comcast Business, with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Plenty of clouds around this evening and overnight tonight. Maybe a few showers tonight. Lows about 47 degrees. For tomorrow, a mixture of sunshine and clouds. Breezy, not quite as warm as today has been. Topping out in the mid-50s. And then for the weekend, mainly sunny on Saturday. Cooler, about 48 for a high. Sunday, sunny. Highs just below 50. 61 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The country's largest newspaper company, Gannett, is once again forecasting it will sell off more of its daily newspapers. Since its merge with newspaper company Gatehouse Media in 2019, Gannett has closed or sold hundreds of papers and slashed staff by more than half, and that is projected to continue. Joshua Benton has been writing about this for the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and he joins me now. Welcome. Good to be with you. Joshua, Gannett had 25,000 employees at the end of 2019, and uh, less than four years later, it has just over 11,000. It slashed staff by more than half. I mean, newspaper revenue has been steadily declining over that time, but not by that much, not at that rate. So what's going on here? The Gannett that we have now is the result of the merger of two very large companies. The idea was an individual newspaper might struggle on its own, but if you buy enough of them, uh, you can extract as much of the, the cost of producing the newspaper from the local community as possible. You cut down on print days, you have the page layout and, and editing done elsewhere. The thought was you could achieve these economies of scale and make a profitable business. The problem is, as part of the merger, uh, Gannett took on a lot of debt, and they have to pay off that debt. So they need revenue, and the way that they have been doing that is by cutting costs uh, to the bone. That means cutting staff and cutting the quality of their newspapers. I guess it goes without saying that print circulation of newspapers has plummeted in recent years. It's been on the decline for decades, actually. Uh, And today, most people get their news online. Is it just the case that these Gannett newspapers aren't managing to get people who used to subscribe to their print paper to subscribe to their digital product instead? Yeah, newspapers have generally given up on the idea of creating new print readers. They're not really making new print readers anymore. So the idea has been to shift to digital and and Gannett claims some some degree of success in doing that. But even when that does happen, uh, newspapers generally make significantly less money off of a digital subscriber than they do from a print subscriber. Um, The other problem is that there are lots of other free alternatives for a lot of local news and information, and uh, people will be happy to consume those without bothering to subscribe to the local daily. You write in the Neiman Journalism Lab that uh, in the last few years, Gannett had 563 newspapers and today has fewer than 400. Uh, Many of these are newspapers that are serving smaller cities and towns. So what does it mean for these communities when their newspapers are sold or closed, or even if they're just gutted of staff. Yeah, Gannett CEO Mike Reed has said that uh, he sees the f- in the future the company will be focusing on its larger newspapers in communities like Phoenix and, and Indianapolis. 
But Gannett owns a lot of very small newspapers, uh, a lot of weekly newspapers, a lot of very small daily newspapers. Those larger weeklies and smaller dailies are in a really tough position economically. It's very difficult to manage the cost uh, while emphasizing digital subscriptions and getting enough of them to, to make things work out. There are also communities where there often isn't as much of an alternative in terms of a local television station or a local digital news outlet that's covering the area. So in a lot of communities, there, there just aren't a lot of options, and uh, these places will become more like a news desert. You know, uh, one newspaper in Eugene, Oregon, the Register Guard, was uh, locally owned by a family in Eugene until 2018 when it sold to Gatehouse, and which was then merged into Gannett. And in that time, the, the newsroom has gone from uh, over 40 employees to what on its current staff listing is seven uh, it's really hard to run a robust newsroom when you have seven people working in your newsroom. At the end of the day, Gannett is a business. Most newspapers are businesses with a mission to inform the public, yes, but also driven by profit motive. So do you see any solutions here for the uh, local communities that are being left behind in these sort of information deserts? I think it is very difficult to manage the transition from a print daily to an effective digital news outlet. It's often much easier to start from scratch. It's not happening everywhere, but there are communities across the country where smart digital outlets are uh, growing to the point where in some cases they have bigger newsrooms than the local daily newspaper does. It is possible, but it, it's a challenge. What do you see in the future of local news? I see a lot more uncovered city council meetings. I see a lot more uh, corruption that uh, doesn't get noticed. I see a lot more uninformed voters, more people who take their cues for how they view their government from national media and the politicized uh, world there as opposed to their local government. There, there certainly are bright spots. There are green shoots going up, but the challenge is just very difficult. I've been speaking with Joshua Benton. He's a senior writer at the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard University. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. The movie Joyland was the first Pakistani film ever to play at the Cannes Film Festival. It was also Pakistan's entry in this year's Oscar race for Best International Feature. But even as it was being celebrated outside Pakistan, it was banned in its home country for being un-Islamic and, quote, containing objectionable material. The ban has mostly been lifted, and the movie has proved popular where it's been allowed to play. Critic Bob Mondello says deservedly so. That's not act. Header is playing blind man's buff with his nieces when we meet him, covered in a sheet, which makes him look like a ghost. And he might as well be one since nobody in the household pays him much attention. His conservative father has no use for him. His alpha male brother and ever-pregnant sister-in-law, they're trying for a son, put up with him because they need stay-at-home help for those nieces. Even Heather's wife, Mumtaz, values him less as a potential father of sons than as a spouse who's okay with her having a job. In an extended Muslim family where gender stereotypes rule, Heather not being employed and Mumtaz being employed makes them both outsiders and therefore allies. Until a friend tells Heather of a job in a club at the Joyland Amusement Park. He'd be on stage behind a glamorous trans female performer named Biba, gyrating and quick-stepping as a backup dancer. And though Hedder's got about as much rhythm as a lamppost, he goes for it and gets it. And then, knowing his family will disapprove, he lies about what the job is. Theater manager. 
This lie and the actual job that goes with it will have consequences, the most immediate being that if he's working, then Mumtaz will have to stay home to care for the kids. But a slower-burning consequence is that Biba, who Alina Khan plays as fiery and outspoken, both on and off stage, kindles something in Ali Janejo's hater, who is eager to please and soft-spoken. She coaches him until his dancing is no longer embarrassing, and he's soon following her around like a puppy, admittedly a useful puppy, one night when an electrical short breaks up her lip-syncing act. He remembers a game he played with his nieces, gets patrons to aim their cell phone flashlights, and wouldn't you know, Biba's sequins sparkling in dimmer light makes her act more persuasive. By this time, Hader's seeing a lot of Biba in dimmer light, and that has consequences too. Director Saim Sadiq bathes the story in the intense colors of South Asian fabrics and teases out themes of gender and sexuality in a world where social rigidity constrains everyone, even Hader's dad, who's ashamed to admit he likes the attentions of a neighboring widow. The filmmaker isn't lecturing or pointing fingers in Joyland. He's just orchestrating situations where relationships can flow to unexpected places, sometimes in tartly funny ways, sometimes in hauntingly sad ones, always in ways that encourage viewers to prize tolerance for the wayward meanderings of desire. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the United Nations is struggling to meet humanitarian needs in Afghanistan, just as the Taliban bans female Afghan aid workers from delivering assistance. That story is still to come. In sports at 5 o'clock today, the BU men's hockey team plays the national semifinals against Minnesota. The title game is on Saturday. Red Sox beat the Detroit Tigers today 6-3 in the Sox' first road game of the season. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass, advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com slash WBUR. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. As one half of the electronic music duo Daft Punk, Thomas Bongoter says he found creative tension in contrasts and oppositions. Very sweet things and very and very violent things going from one thing to another. Now Bongoter brings that tension to orchestral works. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Wilman. The Biden administration is defending its chaotic withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan in 2021. The White House today released a 12-page summary of an investigation into the withdrawal by the Pentagon and State Department that says much of the problem was caused by former President Donald Trump. While it was always the president's intent to end that war, it is also undeniable that decisions made and the lack of planning done by the previous administration significantly limited options available to him. That's National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. He says the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan was the right one, but the timing came from a deal Trump had made with the Taliban that required a full withdrawal by May of that year or else the Taliban would begin fighting again. 
Tens of thousands of people were back on the streets of France today. They were protesting a key pension overhaul ahead of a decision on the plan by the country's top court. Lisa Bryant has the latest from Paris. Protesters say they won't give up, but it remains unclear whether their anger has sticking power. There's still plenty of frustration on the streets against the government's plan raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The administration says that's necessary to keep the pension system solvent. Striking protesters stormed a former bank headquarters in Paris. Students demonstrated outside schools and universities, but many teachers were back at work and the Paris metro mostly ran smoothly. Unions say Wednesday's meeting with Prime Minister Elisabeth Bonne was a failure. They're waiting for next week's ruling by France's Constitutional Council, which has the power to reject some or all of the reform. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Bryant in Paris. It was a decent day for investors on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up two points to finish at 33,485. The Nasdaq closed up 91 points. The S&P 500 up 14 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court today ruled that voluntary statements made by domestic violence victims on police body cameras can be used as evidence. One defendant claimed a victim's statement to police officers was recorded without her consent. The court determined that recording voluntary statements with body cameras does not violate the state's wiretapping law. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling for accountability following a report that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has not reported his luxury vacations that were said to be paid for by a billionaire Republican donor. Senator Warren calls the revelations uncovered by ProPublica a stark reminder that judges need to be held to the highest ethical standards. Senator Markey wants Justice Thomas investigated. Thomas has not commented on the report. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is encouraging the city's teenagers to start applying for summer jobs. The mayor says the city's lined up 7,000 opportunities for 14 to 18-year-olds. Boston State Representative Russell Holmes says the programs provide work experience and allow some teenagers to support their families. It helps the folks who are most challenged. So it's not just the skill sets that we're talking about that uh, the kids get, but it also uh, helps with just the challenges folks have around economics. The city is providing $13 million in grants to community groups to help administer the program. On Beacon Hill, physician assistants are asking lawmakers to keep in place a pandemic-era policy that gives assistants more authority to work without supervision. When the state's public health emergency ends next month, the PAs will again have to be paired with a supervising physician. There's a bill in the legislature to continue to allow physician assistants to make more treatment decisions as one way to address the shortage of health care workers. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum presenting... Gwanda, United Nations, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. You can see some sunshine squeezing through in some parts of the region. Elsewhere, just a lot of clouds around. Windy and warm today. Overnight tonight, more clouds, lows about 47 degrees. And for tomorrow, partly sunny, strong winds, highs sticking just to the mid-50s. This is WBUR 61 degrees now at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches. 
tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To Wisconsin now, where Democrats are celebrating a victory, Judge Janet Protasiewicz winning the state's open Supreme Court seat and thus flipping control of the court to liberals for the first time in 15 years. Well, that has implications for all kinds of things, including abortion. After the Dobbs decision last year, in which the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a Wisconsin law from 1849 went into effect. It makes performing an abortion a felony, except to save the life of the pregnant person. And it has changed how medical professionals do their jobs. I don't feel comfortable practicing in Wisconsin, so I am practicing in Minnesota, which is why I'm driving right now. That is Dr. Kristen Lyerly, an OBGYN who lives in Green Bay. We caught her yesterday in her car on her very long commute home. When Dobbs happened, you know, I decided that the best thing, the safest thing for me and my family was for me to work two or three weeks a month in Minnesota. I'm coming home from a 10-day stint. Well, she is now back in Wisconsin, so we have reached out again. Dr. Lyerly, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more what it's been like for you these last 10 months working in reproductive health with laws being changed at the level of the U.S. Supreme Court and then this Wisconsin law kicking in. It's been a nightmare. It's been a nightmare for me and my colleagues and my patients, really for all of us. As soon as Dobbs happened and we reverted back to the 1849 criminal abortion ban, there was so much chaos and confusion and fear and misinformation. We didn't know what kinds of procedures and care we could provide. People didn't know what kind of care they could get. And although we've clarified much of that, there still is so much confusion that it continues to cause problems every single day. When you say it has been a nightmare for your colleagues, what's that conversation like with with doctors who may still be practicing in Wisconsin as OBGYNs? Well, on one level, people who are seeing patients every single day are faced with additional complexities and barriers to care, things that they're having to do to make sure that they are in compliance with this law if it truly is able to be enforced. On another level, they're thinking about if this law continues to be on the books, can they continue to practice here? I've spoken with a number of colleagues who practice in underserved areas who love their jobs and they love the people that they serve, but they wonder how long they can stay there. And to be honest, they have resignation letters ready for if they need to go. What about for patients, your patients? Um, Where are they going right now if they need abortion care? Most of them are going to Illinois because that is the closest state to where our population centers are in Madison and Milwaukee. Some are traveling to Minnesota, some are traveling further away, but many are not receiving the care that they need because they can't overcome the barriers, the cost, transportation, additional child care. Many of these people have kids at home, time away from work. Any barrier to care is causing problems for people to access fundamental reproductive health care. When you heard the news this week 
that Judge Protosewitz would soon become Justice Protosewitz and the implications for abortion in your state, what went through your mind? I couldn't even allow myself to believe it for about 30 minutes until I checked on a number of different resources to make sure that it was true because this is what we had been hoping for. Doctors across the state in rural areas and urban areas, neurologists, radiologists, pediatricians, every specialty, we've really come together to help people understand how much this is affecting the house of medicine. And all of this effort that we've been putting out has has not only brought us together, but I think has given us hope. But we've all been afraid to dream that this could really happen and that we could get we could be headed in the right direction again. So that realization that this truly could put Wisconsin back on that path to being a healthy state again, where we can truly take care of our patients was overwhelming. To be honest with you, Mary Louise, I burst into tears. <laughs> it was, wow, just wow. And to circle back to your area of expertise, to medicine, I mean, I get why this is of extreme interest for an OBGYN. You, like, why, why, when you say neurologists care, that doctors across the state are in your corner, why? It's so much more than just abortion care. I think that because abortion has been such a political issue, we tend to think of it as something that lives on this isolated island. But the truth is abortion care is integrated into every part of women's health care, from miscarriage management to helping somebody achieve a pregnancy, someone who's been struggling with infertility, to managing a complicated pregnancy, contraception, I mean, really all of those things. And especially when we're dealing with complicated pregnancies, we often have to send our patients to people like neurologists, cardiologists, pulmonologists, radiologists. So we're consulting with the entire house of medicine to help our highest risk patients have the most successful pregnancy outcomes possible. And they too understand how the system is currently failing pregnant people at all levels. And not only that, but in a state where we are criminalizing care, where politicians are inserting themselves in the doctor-patient relationship and threatening felony charges, threatening to put doctors in jail for truly taking care of our patients, what's next? So it's our imperative to stand up and make sure that people understand that we went to medical school to take care of each other. And this is just a different way that we are taking care of the people of Wisconsin. What will this mean to you if the law currently in effect in Wisconsin is overturned? Will you return to practicing medicine full time in Wisconsin? It is my dream to come back home and take care of my patients here in Wisconsin. I'm a sixth generation Wisconsinite. My whole family lives here. My kids are here. My patients are here. There's nothing I want more than to come back here and start taking care of Wisconsinites again. Dr. Kristen Lyerly, an OBGYN in Green Bay, Wisconsin. She is also with the Committee to Protect Healthcare's Reproductive Freedom Task Force, and she's one of many voices we're hearing from as the national conversation on abortion continues. Dr. Lyerly, thanks. Thank you so much.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. California residents are beginning to recover from the barrage of intense storms this winter that caused levee failures and flooding. Some climate scientists say the wild weather is just a sample of what we can expect in a warmer world. KQED's Ezra David Romero has this report. Antonio Wesso evacuated his home in the early morning hours of March 12th. That's when the Pajaro River levee in Monterey County failed. His two-story home is about an hour south of San Francisco. The cameras on his daisy yellow-colored house caught the water submerging his street and then his first floor. I checked my cameras, 8 o'clock. This is a second river. It's the second time the 72-year-old's home has flooded because this levee failed. He's now considering leaving his home of nearly five decades. I'm fixing the house, and uh, when the people forget this, I sold my house and I moved it to Madeira, Fresno, I don't know. UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain warns what Californians have lived through this winter is only a taste of what's to come as human-caused climate change continues. As disruptive as this year's events have been, we're nowhere near close to a plausible worst-case storm and flood scenario for California. Swain is clear about the links between climate change and the increase in extreme flooding. In a study last year, Swain looked at the worst-case scenario, a weeks-long parade of extreme atmospheric rivers, which California did not have this year. Swain found the warming climate has already doubled the probability of a mega-flood, Such catastrophic flooding could create more than $1 trillion in damage. It could happen next year, or it might not happen for 100 years. If this pattern of back-to-back atmospheric rivers sounds familiar, it's because Californians are witnessing an echo of this. Swain says the main differences are that this winter's storms had breaks between them and that none of the storms were considered extreme. We see that it is possible to have years where there are multiple atmospheric rivers in a row that are much stronger than what we saw at any point this year. California is taking Swain's predictions seriously. Michael Anderson is a state's climatologist. He's trying to convince the state to fund a project that would model severe flooding scenarios considering climate data, weather forecasting, and local conditions. Anderson says this would give the state a heads up on just how severe a storm pattern could be, what's at risk of flooding, and who should evacuate. Unfortunately, Mother Nature kind of beat us to the punch here, but we're working on trying to develop a capability to kind of help us better understand how to recognize when things are scaling up so that you get the right level of response dialed in, and it's a tool we don't have right now. The project could be completed in a year if the state approves it. The planning is already late for people dealing with flooding from failed levees this winter. The squishy sand is still water being here and mud. Benya Escutia woke up to the sound of water trickling into her room hours after the pajaro levee broke. My feet touched the rug and the rug was wet. Escutia is 18 and is questioning whether pajaro can remain home due to the effects of human-caused climate change. What do you think your future will look like if you stay here? My future, I feel like it will look like gone. Gone, because the climate the levee was designed for no longer exists. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero.
You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Listen to a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with the Marshall Project. Violation is a story about two families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. Hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Their employment lawyers have your work cut out for them. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Newly released data from the Pentagon show a significant increase in reports of sexual assault at America's military academies. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. In the forecast, a few bright spots around there, otherwise a lot of clouds around that should stick around overnight tonight. Could have a few showers, lows about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 61 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. Come see the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard. Gardnermuseum.org. And Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The United Nations has a difficult balancing act in Afghanistan. The humanitarian needs are dire, but the Taliban is no longer allowing female Afghan aid workers to deliver assistance. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports that diplomats are outraged, but having trouble convincing the Taliban to overturn the ban. 28 million Afghans, the vast majority in the country, are in need of humanitarian aid. And Catherine Russell, who heads the UN's Children's Fund, says Afghan women are the lifeblood of the UN's work there. They have access to populations that their male colleagues cannot reach. They are nutrition experts, community health and social workers, teachers, vaccinators, nurses, doctors, and so much more. And she says without them, the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan will only intensify. And more children will die. The Taliban took control of Afghanistan more than a year and a half ago and have ignored pressure from the West to maintain women's rights. There's a lot of hand-wringing at the U.N. Security Council. British Ambassador Barbara Woodward told reporters that the Taliban have led a sustained campaign to take women out of public life. It shows us again that the Taliban is placing medieval misogyny above humanitarian need uh, in Afghanistan. She says the UK feels caught because it wants to help the millions of Afghans in desperate need, but doesn't want to legitimize the Taliban. The United Nations is trying to keep its operations going, though for now all Afghan aid workers are staying home. Deputy UN Secretary General Amina Mohammed says the UN will not backfill the jobs of Afghan women with men or with women from other countries who are allowed to operate in Afghanistan. On a personal note, I am outraged. I am terrified. Terribly troubled uh, by the fact that in the month of Ramadan, 
that what we get from the Taliban um, is a strike against uh, the, the teachings and the belief of Islam. The Holy Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet وسلم, allows and gives rights to women on education for work. The Taliban are also blocking women and girls from going to secondary school and seeking higher education. Some activists are calling on the UN to halt its work and to stop talking with the Taliban. But spokesman Stefan Dujaric says the UN has to deal with those who have power. We will not abandon the people of Afghanistan and we will also not violate our bedrock of humanitarian principles. And we have to navigate that very delicate and, and narrow space. U.S. officials say that if the Taliban want legitimacy on the world stage, they should restore the rights of women and girls. It's a call the U.S. has made repeatedly and unsuccessfully ever since the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover in 2021. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Spring holidays are approaching, and for people who don't have rituals around these holidays, like Easter or Passover, this can be a confusing time. I mean, some grew up in a religious tradition but have since left it. Others may never have had a personal connection to any holiday during this time. And yet, there is still something about spring that makes a lot of people want to mark this turn of season, right, and embrace some kind of ritual, regardless of their religious affiliation. One person who's given this a lot of thought is Casper Turkile. He runs the Nearness Project, which helps foster community online. Welcome back to All Things Considered, Casper. Thanks so much for having me back, Elsa. Great to see you. So, okay, let's say you are someone who's looking to have some kind of ritual to celebrate or mark this time. Where do you suggest to even begin? Like, is it about picking and choosing traditions that already are out there or inventing something from scratch? What do you think? Well, I think the best place to start is looking outside. You know, the natural world is where things are really changing right now. And, you know, noticing what's changing, I think, is such a big part of what ritual and spirituality are all about. So getting outside, maybe noticing what plants are growing or what's flowering for the first time. You know, I get very excited with the first crocus or with the first daffodil because uh-huh. it just reminds me that winter is not forever. And I think what's beautiful about the seasons is, you know, they remind us of like, yeah, if you're going through a tough time right now, maybe that feels a little bit like winter and that spring will come again. So there's something in the natural world that, that gives us this promise that whatever we're in right now, will we'll come to an end. I was just going to ask you, what, what do you think it is that makes people crave ritual, especially during this time? Because, I mean, you're absolutely right. Sometimes winter can seem endless. I know here in Los Angeles, um, it has been pouring nonstop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, rituals are there to help us mark changes. You know, they're really great for marking transitions. Um, and so as we move from one stage of life to another, or perhaps there's a relationship that's come to an end, or a new job, or, or a, a death of a loved one, you know, those are the moments when we're, we want to explore the big questions. We want to mark those moments in some way. And so rituals are there to help us, to help us process those changes, to help us make meaning of them. And and that's what religious traditions at their best have always done. And for folks kind of outside of a, a congregation or that don't belong to a tradition right now, I still think there's such value in finding those rituals to mark that change. I think I'm one of the people that I was talking about in the introduction to this conversation because I am not Christian. I did not grow up celebrating Easter. And I remember... 
as a girl, I showed up with my mom at a shopping mall, a local shopping mall, and we were surprised to find it closed because it was Easter Sunday. And we were like, oh, it didn't even occur to us that the shopping mall might be closed today because we never gave that particular Sunday any thought. So I've always felt kind of excluded um, during Easter time, that it wasn't for me and I didn't know how to market. And yet, yes, there is something about the spring that that does stir something in me, but I never knew what to do with that feeling. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. Because if you're a guest of, you know, someone that you're fond of, and you get to participate in their traditions or their rituals, absolutely. So often we get to kind of touch the transcendence that's that's happening for them and their community by being a guest in it. Um, you know, there's definitely some boundaries, I think it's important to navigate around spiritual appropriation, right, where we take mm -hmm. something that isn't ours, and celebrate it in a way that we want to, that, that's a little trickier. But I think being invited into something like that is a beautiful opportunity. But if you wanted to start something yourself, this would be my top recommendation, yeah. which is to think about, is there something that you love? Whether it's uh, in this season, maybe it's a particular creative activity, maybe something outside now that the weather's changing. Is there something you love that you can build in as a ritual at this time of year? So maybe it's about, you know, a, a first dip in the ocean <laughs> when it's still pretty. Or hiking pretty. in the mountains. Exactly. And like finding a specific place to go back to at this time of year and building that into a cadence every year. And that's how these rituals grow. And each of us, I think, has the capacity to, to make those traditions anew. Casper Turkile facilitates community through his project, The Nearness. Thank you so much again, Casper. Thanks for having me. And if you ever want to come decorate Easter eggs, you know where I am. Oh, <laughs> you're on. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes, Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures have started to head downward after they reached low 60s around Boston today. It's now 59 degrees, should fall to the mid-40s overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around, maybe some showers. Partly sunny tomorrow, breezy, topping out in the mid-50s. Should be a nice day and an even nicer weekend ahead, but cool. Saturday, sunny, breezy, 48 for a high. Sunday, sunny skies with highs just below 50. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Central Square Theater's Angels in America. Tony Kushner's Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning Hopeful Modern Masterpiece begins April 20th, centralsquaretheater.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. On the heels of a mass shooting at a school in Nashville, the Republican-led Tennessee legislature today has just expelled one of three Democratic House lawmakers accused of breaking decorum in a protest over gun control. A vote is about to take place on expelling the second lawmaker. It's Thursday, April 6th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the Pentagon has released data that show a significant increase in reports of sexual assault at America's military academies. It was the drumbeat of the environment, and there were constant comments, constant sexual harassment comments that women were just lesser. More on the decades-long cycle of misconduct coming up. And Massachusetts gaming regulators say no to a DraftKings proposal to allow betting on the Boston Marathon. It's 501 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Tennessee's Republican-dominated House has voted to expel one House member over a demonstration calling for gun control in the wake of a school shooting in Nashville and is looking at similar treatment for two other State House Democrats. The trio chanted back and forth from the chamber floor days after six people, including three children, died in a shooting at Nashville's Covenant School with protesters calling for gun control. One of those lawmakers, Justin Jones, had a strong message about the GOP action. A state in which the Ku Klux Klan was founded is now attempting another power grab by silencing the two youngest black representatives and one of the only women Democratic women in this body, that's what this is about. Outside the chamber, Jones chanted, no action, no peace. The vote represents an extraordinary move that has only occurred in the State House chamber there a handful of times since the Civil War. The long-awaited after-reaction reviews of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan are being shared with Congress. NPR's Asma Holland reports the White House is releasing a 12-page summary blaming the previous president for much of the mayhem. The White House insists Biden's decision to officially end the war in Afghanistan was the right move. But it blames Donald Trump's administration for the chaos. It is also undeniable that decisions made and the lack of planning done by the previous administration significantly limited options available. That's John Kirby. He's a spokesman with the National Security Council. He reiterated that no agency predicted a Taliban takeover so quickly. But he said the government has learned a key lesson to plan early for low probability, high risk scenarios. And that has shaped how it's handled the conflict in Ukraine. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined to enforce a West Virginia law prohibiting transgender youth from participating in school sports. Curtis Tate of West Virginia Public Broadcasting has more. West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey last month petitioned the high court to allow the ban to stay in effect while a challenge worked its way through the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. On Thursday, the Supreme Court declined to do that without explaining why. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented. West Virginia lawmakers passed the Save Women's Sports Act in 2021. A transgender middle school student challenged the law. A U.S. district judge in Charleston allowed the law to take effect in January, but the Fourth Circuit put it on hold once again. 
Morrissey, who this week announced a run for governor, said in a statement Thursday that he was, quote, deeply disappointed. For NPR News, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston, West Virginia. Stocks seeked out modest gains on Wall Street today ahead of a closely watched government jobs report due out tomorrow. The Dow was up two points. The Nasdaq rose 91 points. The S&P was up 14 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The number of people seeking unemployment benefits in Massachusetts is rising. The Department of Labor reports more than 15,000 people in the state filed initial claims for unemployment last week. That is up 8 percent from the prior week. The rise reflects a national trend. The number of Americans filing for jobless benefits has toppled, or has topped, that is, 200,000 each week since early February. That's low by historical standards, but it reflects an increase from just a few months ago. You will not be able to place a bet in Massachusetts on this year's Boston Marathon. Today, the State Gaming Commission unanimously rejected the request from Boston-based DraftKings. Commissioner Eileen O'Brien says she can't believe the company did not reach out to organizers of the race before it made its request. The Boston Marathon in particular, what it means to the city and in particular on this year, 10 years out from the tragedy, um, I am disappointed to say the least that a local operator did not in fact do that. DraftKings wanted people to be allowed to place bets on potential winners of the race. The online sports betting site also wanted to let residents bet and over-under on the winning race time. 6,400 Eversource customers in Newton are without power. Newton police say a manhole exploded about an hour and a half ago. It happened in the Newton Highlands area near Walnut and Lakewood streets. Nobody was hurt. On Cape Cod, rescuers say they've made some progress as they try to free a North Atlantic right whale from fishing line that's wrapped around her. The Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown said today its response team managed to remove 100 feet of rope from the entanglement on Tuesday in the waters off Wellfleet, but the center's Scott Landry says the young female whale is in grave danger. First of all, she has rope caught in her mouth, and so that starts to interfere with feeding, and then that same rope wraps around her body three times. So any weight that she pulls on, that rope grows into her. This is the second attempt to help the whale within the past week. A tracking buoy fell off the marine mammal, so rescuers now need to rely on an aerial search to find her for their ongoing efforts. In the forecast, mainly cloudy, windy, and warm today into tonight. Overnight, lows about 47. Tomorrow, partly sunny, strong winds, highs sticking to the mid-50s. Saturday and Sunday, mainly sunny. Weekend highs only in the 40s. 59 degrees now in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Hundreds of protesters packed into the Tennessee state capitol today as lawmakers debated expelling three Democratic House members. Republicans say the trio broke decorum by speaking out last week about the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, which killed three children and three staffers. The days leading up to the expulsion debate have been dramatic and chaotic, and today was no different. Here to catch us up on the latest is Chaz Sisk of member station WPLN in Nashville. Hi. Hi. Uh, First, catch us up with what's been happening today. Uh, Lawmakers in Tennessee debating whether to expel members while lots of protesters were on hand. Uh, What more can you tell us? 
Well, it's been a dramatic scene so far. There have been protesters in the House galleries, outside the chamber, and even outside the Capitol because there were so many people trying to get in. Inside the chamber, it's been a really intense debate. So far, they've expelled one of the lawmakers. That's Nashville Representative Justin Jones, and they're still debating the other expulsions. The stated reason is that a week ago, as you said, Jones and the other two took to the floor of the House because they were upset that the Republican Speaker wouldn't let them talk about the Covenant school shooting and gun legislation. Republicans say that was a serious breach of decorum, tantamount to an insurrection, and that requires expulsion. Here's Republican State Representative Gino Bolso. The gentleman shows no remorse. He does not even recognize that what he did was wrong. So not to expel him would simply invite him and his colleagues to continue to engage in mutiny on the House floor. Chaz, this move is being described as unprecedented in Tennessee. Uh, Why is that? Well, expulsions are very rare in Tennessee. It's happened only four times in the past century and a half. The most recent was just last year, and that's when the Tennessee Senate expelled a member convicted of fraud for misusing federal money. Over in the House, a member was expelled in 2016 after he was accused of sexual harassment, and that was preceded by a lengthy investigation by the state's attorney general. And before that, you have to go all the way back to 1980 when a House member was expelled for bribery. It's been noted by these lawmakers' defenders that there have been a lot of questionable behaviors in the years since then. There's been a member who urinated on another's chair and uh, others who were accused of very serious crimes without being censured, much less expelled. Uh, Now, a lot of people who are opposed to this expulsion are, are talking about it as an attack on democracy. What is that argument rooted in? Well, I think you have to remember, and what you have to understand is these members have been a thorn in the Republican side for a while. Jones, the national representative who was expelled already, he was a very prominent political activist here at the Capitol before getting elected last November. And he was even banned for a while from the state Capitol for throwing a styrofoam cup at the former House Speaker. But what they've been up against is a huge Republican supermajority that can cut off debate at a moment's notice. And we've seen that happen more and more frequently over the past several years. So there's been a lot of frustration building up for a while before this uh, this action on the House floor. Here's Jones, the Nashville representative, giving his defense just a little bit ago. He stood his ground throughout the proceedings, and he calls the expulsion the latest move in an extended power grab. And so that is why I walked up to the well. I walked up to the well because you were pushing my people back. We brought a megaphone because you cut our people off and you cut their representatives off from the microphone time after time after time after time after time again. And there comes a time where people get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think it's really important to note just how few Democrats there are left in Tennessee. I've been covering the legislature since 2009, and back then there was a pretty even split. Now it's three-quarters Republicans in the House, and all but six of the Senate's 33 members are Republicans, and there are no Democrats who hold statewide office in Tennessee. WPLN senior editor Chaz Sisk uh, talking about uh, Republican efforts to expel three Democrats from the Tennessee state legislature earlier today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Recently released figures from the Pentagon show a significant increase in reports of sexual assault at America's military academies. Those figures are only part of a troubling pattern that stretches back decades, as Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce reports. In 2003, the U.S. Air Force Academy was at the heart of a national scandal. 
The Air Force is investigating a widening sexual abuse scandal at the prestigious institution in Colorado Springs. A whistleblower complaint documented a long-standing practice of academy leaders minimizing sexual assault claims. Then a survey found 12% of female cadets were the victims of rape or attempted rape during their time there. Here's NPR host Michelle Norris speaking with then-Secretary of the Air Force James Roach. Does this suggest that, there, that there's a problem with the culture of the military, that, that even now, in the year 2003, the military is still not accommodating to women? Well, I'm trying to separate the difference between the military and the Air Force Academy. This is not an Air Force problem. This is an Air Force Academy problem. And does it suggest that there's a problem with the culture of the academy? Yes. That was the first time the Air Force started to really take seriously the idea that structural changes and continuous oversight of the Air Force Academy was absolutely needed. Rachel Van Landingham is a law professor and president of the National Institute of Military Justice. That's today, back in 1988. Well, I showed up as a uh, brand new 18-year-old at the Air Force Academy straight out of uh, Toledo, Ohio not having any idea what I was getting myself into. What she was getting herself into was what she describes as a culture of complete misogyny. It was the drumbeat of the environment that was there. It was hard to get away from that when there were constant comments, constant sexual harassment comments, um, and comments that women were just lesser. The resulting investigations found leadership had long known about the problems without taking action, and that broad structural change was needed not just at the Air Force Academy, but across the military. It all led to the creation of Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, or SAPR offices at every U.S. military installation in the world. And that brings us back to 2023, where Sonia Strickland runs the SAPR office at the Air Force Academy. Her office is currently in the process of doubling its size from 12 to 25 full-time staff. Am I proud that I still have to work in this field? No, I would love to one day say, I no longer have a job. I've had to move on to something else. We've tackled the issue of, of sexual violence, but we haven't. Before cadets even arrive on academy grounds, they receive packets in the mail discussing alcohol, mental health, sexual harassment. And soon after they get to the academy... We have healthy relationship education. And we have trainees that talk about healthy boundaries. You know, how do you ask for consent? All of this at an institution rooted to its core in a deep honor code. Despite that code and all the work from Strickland's office, the results just released from a Pentagon survey show a significant increase in sexual assault at the Air Force Academy since 2018. 22% of female cadets report unwanted sexual contact, which the survey describes as anything from touching all the way up to rape. And that figure is 4% for men. Both those figures are the highest on record. Now, a new group of volunteer cadets has been trying to do something about it. It's this braid of cord. That Taryn Cates Byer points to a teal-colored rope attached rope to her camouflage uniform. Tied onto your left shoulder, and it's looped around your arm. And it signifies what your job is and what you are a part of. These cadets call themselves, appropriately, the teal ropes. The group formed a few years ago, more than 90 cadets who have gone through rigorous training to be liaisons. 
peers, available anytime to talk to potential victims of assault and then help them navigate the daunting process of reporting what happened. Teal Rope Cadet Jennifer Bonna. And when they tell you, it is heartbreaking. Like, I would be lying if I said I didn't cry when they cried. And, like, just letting them know that, like, I believe you, seeing their face when you, like, tell them, like, I believe everything, I want to help you. Those first conversations could lead a potential victim to the Sapper office. It's a warm and inviting space where teal ropes and staff offer tea and stress balls. They put together puzzles. And more victims have been walking into that office, have been filing more formal assault reports. Bonna says there is something positive there. Maybe the teal ropes are helping build trust in the Sapper office. At first, like, I'm always really, really sad. There was like 50-some people that had to go through this. I know what that's like, and I'm so sorry. But at the same time, you know what? Those 50-some people came forward and spoke their story and felt comfortable taking action. And that's empowering. Other factors could be leading to more victims coming forward. A 2020 rule change now allows cadets to report assaults without being cited themselves for misconduct, such as underage drinking. Still, Rachel Van Landingham with the National Institute of Military Justice is not impressed with how the Pentagon has handled the uptick in cases. Well, I don't see anything positive. We don't know if the number's going up because there's greater reporting or if the number's going up because there's a greater number of actual sexual assaults occurring. The Pentagon calls the rising sexual assault numbers at all three military academies unacceptable and upsetting. Military leaders, all the way up to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, are promising reforms. In the meantime, a provision in last year's defense budget moves the prosecution of some crimes, like sexual assault by service members, away from commanders and into the hands of independent prosecutors. That goes into effect at the end of the year. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Biden administration is defending withdrawing the U.S. military presence from Afghanistan, but it blames the Trump administration for lack of preparedness. And in about six minutes, from Maryland's Attorney General, a report on clergy sex abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. On Wall Street, stocks ended the day higher, just barely for the Dow, though. It was nearly flat. S&P rose more than one-third percent. NASDAQ grew by three-quarters of a percent. British antitrust regulators are investigating Amazon's plan to purchase a Bedford-based company, iRobot. U.K. officials said today they believe the $1.7 billion deal for the robotic vacuum maker will reduce competition there in home robotics. 
The sale plan is already under review by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission because of concerns about Amazon's growing market power. Amazon says it's cooperating with all relevant regulators. iRobot was founded three decades ago out of MIT. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And CertiPro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certipro.com. That's Certa with a C. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Should be cloudy tonight. The chance of showers. Temperatures about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds blended. Should have a few bright spots around. A lot of clouds through the night. Maybe a few showers. Lows about 47 degrees. And then for the weekend, looks like it's going to be pretty nice. Saturday, mainly sunny, breezy, but cooler. Around 48 for a high. Sunday, just about the same. Sunny skies. Highs just below 50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is ultimately the man responsible for bringing historic criminal charges against former President Trump this week. In return, a lot of Trump's defenders are attacking Alvin Bragg, and many make a point of linking him to the wealthy investor and liberal philanthropist George Soros. Beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. Uh, these Soros-backed DAs, they are a menace to society. They are George a menace Soros funded Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. That was Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene there. So why is George Soros a favorite target of conservative politicians? We wanted to understand that better, so we reached out to a journalist who wrote the book on him. Emily Tampkin is the author of The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power, and the Struggle for an Open Society. Uh, I want to open by noting that NPR has in past accepted money from Soros' foundation to finance independent reporting on state governments. And I want to welcome you, Emily Tampkin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's start with a basic fact check. What exactly is the connection between George Soros or his foundations and Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg? So in this case, Soros gave money to a group called Color of Change, which is a social justice civil rights group that in turn gave some money to the campaign of District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Okay, so, so Soros gave money between... to this group, this progressive group, and then they gave right. money to Bragg's campaign. Okay, go on. Yes. So since the late 1990s, um, George Soros has been involved philanthropically in trying to have society rethink criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And this is involved not philanthropically, but politically, giving two campaigns of progressive district attorneys. So when 
you hear people on the right say, well, he, you know, these Soros and these DAs, it comes from a grain of truth, which is that this is somebody who for decades now has been committed to rethinking how we do criminal justice in this country and has given money to certain candidates, or in this case, a group that then gave to a candidate. But I think we need to differentiate between that and saying, and he is controlling these people. Yeah. I mean, is there any evidence that Soros got something for this money in the case of Alvin Bragg, that, that his money bought influence in some way? No, there's there's no evidence of that. And just more broadly, there are critiques to be made, right, about a billionaire philanthropist who gives money to prosecutors' campaigns, right? We could have a conversation about money in politics, the power of billionaires in American society. All of that is fair game, Right. But that's not really what this is. This is over-assigning the influence of Soros over Bragg and also dramatically overstating the agency that Soros has over this case. But so what is it about George Soros that makes, you know, for conservative politicians, that makes linking somebody to him so attractive? Like, what's the implication of calling somebody Soros-affiliated? Right. I think it's three things. The first is that I once had somebody in Europe where these conspiracy theories are also popular tell me you couldn't dream up a more perfect cartoon villain because he is, in the U.S. context, he was born abroad, he's born in Hungary, he works in finance, he lives in New York, he's Jewish, which brings with it all sorts of um, connotations if one wants to play on anti-Semitism. He also has been very influential in politics, finance, and philanthropy. So often when you hear a conspiracy theory or a smear, it, it comes from somewhere that is like next to the truth, which brings us to conversations like this one where you're separating fact from fiction and fiction's already doing laps. And then finally, the idea of Soros's open society philanthropic work, you know, an open society is one in which we all have an equal chance to participate and that chance is based not on ethnicity or race or religion. And I think that vision is counter to the vision that many of those, particularly on the political right, who attack Soros would like to see. You mentioned George Soros is Jewish, which mm -hmm. is prompting questions as to whether the attacks on him are anti-Semitic. Um, how do you understand this? The idea of a Jewish person being all-controlling and all-powerful and using that control and power to denigrate and degrade and corrupt society is a very, very old one. It does not matter if the word Jewish was not actually said. This is trying to use anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes in order to stir something up within the hearts and minds of those hearing it. Has Soros himself weighed in? He put out a statement that said um, that he has never met Bragg and also has pointed to an op-ed that he wrote for the Wall Street Journal explaining why he backs progressive prosecutors. But I almost think that what he says and doesn't say, obviously it matters, but it's going to get lost in all of this because the allegations against him are not based on what he's actually said and done. Um, it's based on overstating what he has said and done. Journalist Emily Tamkin, thank you. Thank you. In the summer of 2002, the nation's Roman Catholic bishops promised zero tolerance for sexual abuse of children by priests. Today, investigators are still finding additional allegations of abuse. Yesterday, the Maryland Attorney General released new findings of a pervasive history of sex abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. 
This story is about two minutes, and some may find it disturbing. WYPR's Scott Massioni has the story. Survivors of sexual abuse are experiencing a bittersweet moment. While some feel vindicated, others are angry that more abusers weren't named. Maryland Attorney General Anthony Brown says the facts are clear. The incontrovertible history uncovered by this investigation is one of pervasive, pernicious, and persistent abuse by priests and other archdiocese personnel. It's also a history of repeated cover-up of that abuse. The report details clergy raping children, forcing them to play Russian roulette, and choking them with ropes. The investigation found more than 600 children were abused by nearly 160 priests in the Baltimore Archdiocese over the last 80 years. Jean hardigan Wayner is one of the abuse survivors. I'm feeling very, very sad because who in the hell would want to be excited about this horrible stuff that's going to be in these papers? In a letter addressing the report, Baltimore Archbishop William Lurie calls the findings soul-searing, and he personally apologized to the survivors, saying the church continues to improve its accountability. However, nearly 100 names of currently living clergy were redacted until the alleged abusers have a chance to review the report and respond to it. That's not good enough for David Lorenz with the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. There's a lot of church leadership involved in this cover-up, and we still don't know. Maryland's Attorney General is now working to release the names omitted from the report. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, the Boston University men's hockey team just scored in the collegiate national semifinals. The Terriers lead Minnesota 1-0 in the first period in the game in Tampa. Title game is Saturday. Red Sox halted their three-game skid as they topped the Tigers 6-3 this afternoon in Detroit. And the Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on Toronto. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. In the forecast, lots of clouds around overnight tonight. Windy and temperature should be just about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, some strong winds again. Highs sticking to the mid-50s. 59 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.30. Populism is a defining political current in the United States. Resentment is at the heart of this populist drive. And around the world. Populism unifies the people by negativity. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Listen to On Point, Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian danger, and democratic promise. Our week-long exploration begins Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. Tennessee's Republican-dominated House has voted to expel Representative Justin Jones. He was one of three Democratic members who had joined in on a demonstration in the House chamber calling for gun control following the Nashville school shooting last month. Six people, including three children, were killed in that shooting. Before the vote, Jones excoriated the Republicans for what he called a farce. Your extreme measure is an attempt 
to subvert the will of voters who democratically elected us as representatives to speak and to passionately fight for them. The House is now discussing possible expulsion for the other two members. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is in China today, along with French President Emmanuel Macron. Both are calling on Chinese President Xi Jinping to pressure Russia to stop its war in Ukraine. But as NPR's Emily Fang reports, Macron also signed several purchasing agreements. Von der Leyen said she warned China's Xi Jinping not to arm Russia and said she told her he was willing to speak to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky when the time and conditions are right. She recently met with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Macron is also in China and was given a full red carpet welcome off the plane with saluting Chinese soldiers. He gave lengthy remarks that exceeded Xi's speech and the Chinese leader could be seen sighing impatiently during the press conference. Macron also appealed for Xi to help end the war in Ukraine, though China's Xi gave no indication he would do so. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. California officials say 12 of the state's 17 major reservoirs are now filled above their historical averages. It's a major turnaround for a state that has faced three years of drought that had drained the reservoirs to dangerously low levels. The waters come from an unprecedented series of powerful storms. Some of the reservoirs are so full, managers are releasing water to prepare for massive snowmelt later this year. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court says police officers can use their body cameras to record a statement from someone who claims to be a victim of domestic violence. The Supreme Judicial Court also ruled today that the recording can only take place if the statement is being made voluntarily. The court found such recordings do not violate the state's wiretapping law. Nearly the entire Massachusetts congressional delegation wants the new owner of Silicon Valley Bank to renew its commitment to finance affordable housing in Massachusetts. The North Carolina-based First Citizens Bank is in the process of taking over the failed financial institution. More than 800 low-income homes being built in Massachusetts were financed by Silicon Valley. In a letter to the bank, 10 of the 11 delegation members say it's critical to avoid any disruption in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. The bank says it's in discussion with Boston community leaders and is committed to investing in affordable housing. The city of Boston is urging teenagers 14 to 18 years old to start applying for a summer job. Rashad Koop is with the Office of Youth and Employment Opportunity. He says the 7,000 opportunities available through the city's summer jobs program will benefit teenagers by providing them with workplace experience. Especially those from disadvantaged and low-income backgrounds who face higher barriers to employment as they become adults. The city is providing grants to community organizations so they can help coordinate the program. Information on the program is available at the city's website, boston.gov. The state's gaming commission is rejecting a sports betting company's attempt to offer bets on this month's Boston Marathon. In a unanimous vote today, commissioners turned down DraftKings' proposal. The commissioners and race organizers are concerned the company did not consult with the marathon organizers before asking for permission. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. In the forecast, mainly cloudy, windy, warm into the night, but then overnight lows should be down around 47 degrees, some showers overnight. Tomorrow, partly sunny, gusty winds, highs sticking to the mid-50s, should be a nice day. And for the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, sunshine both days, only in the 40s, though. 59 degrees now in Boston at 535.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama, available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The White House has released a long-awaited review of its highly criticized withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Biden administration is now acknowledging it should have moved more quickly to get Americans and Afghan friends out of Kabul. But there are very few other admissions of any kind of misjudgment about the end of America's longest war. Instead, the report largely blames the Trump administration. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is at the White House And Franco, how did this report come about? Why now? You know, it came about because there was such uh, interest in how the war ended. I mean, as you remember, as we all remember, it was just so chaotic. I mean, those images at the airport, desperate Afghans chasing after that U.S. Air Force plane, some even hanging on and falling to their deaths. Um, there was also, of course, the suicide bombing at at Abbey Gate, also at the airport, that killed 13 service members. And at the time, the White House promised an extensive examination of every aspect of the mission. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, he called it a hot wash, a review of every detail. So there was all this anticipation for some kind of explanation about how things seemed to go so wrong. And what is the explanation? What they find? You know, the report, frankly, was a bit underwhelming. I mean, especially considering all those details. I mean, uh, and I will also note that the White House kind of dropped this report on us reporters just minutes before the briefing started. All of us were in the room trying to pour through it, searching for that explanation. But as you turn the pages, it reads more as a justification for the administration's actions and really does not take blame. It places more of the blame, as you noted, on former President Donald Trump. Trump for not helping in the transition. And it specifically states that the Trump administration provided no plans for how to conduct the withdrawal or to evacuate Americans and Afghan allies. Okay, but it was the Biden administration that actually did conduct that withdrawal Mm -hmm. and which was criticized for bad intelligence. I remember interviewing officials at the Pentagon and other agencies that summer. They did not predict Kabul would fall, certainly not as fast as it did. What did they say about that? Yeah, exactly. John John Kirby, the national spokesman for the National Security Council, he was at the podium today, and us reporters asked him a lot about that. He generally defended U.S. intelligence assessments, but he did acknowledge that there's some of it was off. And clearly we didn't get things right here with Afghanistan, about how fast the Taliban were moving across the country. I don't think we fully anticipated the degree to which they were constructing these deals in the hinterlands that kind of fell like dominoes. But he also insisted that these reports, these after-action reports, are not about accountability. After-action reviews are not investigations. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not criminal proceedings. It's, it's not hunting for heads. 
You know, instead, he says, they're a chance to learn from and apply those lessons as needed. And he says they're actually applying those lessons in conflicts in Ukraine and Ethiopia, such as doing more worst-case scenario planning, for example, and communicating more about the risks of the impending invasion in Ukraine. It'll be interesting to see how that line lands, that these these reports are not about accountability. Um, So what does happen now? What happens to this report? Well, the 12-page report we saw was just a summary, and that's the one that was released to the public as well. The White House says that it will submit another report to Congress. Kirby said that report would be more detailed and include classified information that could not be released to the public. And as you know, the criticism about the withdrawal has not relented at all, and it's come from diplomats and lawmakers on both parties. We're likely to hear much more of that in the coming weeks because Republican leaders in the House, they've said that they're going to do their own investigation and they have started their own investigation of the withdrawal. All righty. NPR's Franco Ordonez reporting from his post at the White House. Thank you, Franco. Thanks, Mary Louise. Mass layoffs have hit several sectors hard, among them tech and media. And for some workers, the cuts have come at a really unfortunate time while they've been on leave. Losing a job is hard enough. It can be even more complicated when you're not in the headspace to find something new. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. Cat Fan was in bed last November, recovering from major abdominal surgery when her phone started blowing up. A lot of people were messaging me and texting me on LinkedIn or my cell phone. Facebook's parent company, Meta, had just announced a first round of layoffs, 11,000 employees. At the time, Fan, who's a mother of three, was a recruiter for Meta. She'd been there almost five years and was out on paid medical leave. That day, she learned she too was losing her job. So I was trying to like navigate through my cell phone. But she was still on pain meds, in and out of sleep. And so by the time I like woke up and checked my laptop, it was already like fully locked out. And I was like, oh, darn. Now, there's nothing illegal about laying off employees in the middle of a leave. Provided there's sufficient documentation that there's a legitimate non-retaliatory reason that's based on the business. That's Ariana Moray, an employment attorney with the law firm Skarinci Hollenbeck. In other words, employers cannot use medical leave or parental leave as the reason to lay someone off. They have to be treated just the same as if they were working as She says some companies do wait until the end of someone's leave to implement a layoff, sometimes because they want to give that person time to get back on their feet. And sometimes they want to avoid any chance of a headache down the road. Because, Moray says, while they may have a legitimate business reason, there's still a risk. A risk that an employee might challenge the decision, leading to a costly fight. Last month, Meta announced a second round of layoffs, another 10,000 employees. And Cat Fan says now there's a huge WhatsApp group for those affected who are on leave. All folks that were on like paternity or maternity leave, they're all like asking questions, trying to navigate it. Trying to find out if they can negotiate a different end date or simply trying to find support. So far, Fan says she hasn't heard of anyone getting any extra time because they're on leave. Like other tech companies, Meta is giving all employees a generous severance package, including health care coverage for six months. Which is amazing and very helpful. After all, employers in the U.S. are not required to provide severance. Many workers end up with nothing.
Still, even with a financial cushion, Van says the last few months have been stressful. First off, she was still bedbound for many weeks, only getting up to shower or go to the doctor. And instead of focusing on her recovery, she was dealing with all the things you're faced with when you're suddenly cut off from your job. I spent a lot of time trying to like get my cell phone number back. And on top of that, she was worried about who else at work had been laid off. Her access to the internal chat system was gone. It was a roller coaster of emotions, she says. It just felt like you were dumped and then ghosted very quickly. Now it's been several months since her surgery. I am recovered, not 100%. She's doing physical therapy, trying to build up endurance, and taking on a small amount of contract work for now. She knows she's fortunate she doesn't have to jump into full-time work right away. She still has health care until July. But given where the economy is right now, she is thinking hard about what she should try to do next. She's been a recruiter in tech for almost a decade. But who needs a recruiter now while hiring is on hold? Andrea Shu, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Several states have started to ban forced prison labor through laws that abolish slavery or involuntary servitude. In Florida, black lawmakers thought they had a chance to pass such a ban as well. But as the political climate there shifted, they aborted the effort. Wilkin Brutus with member station WLRN reports. In the November elections, voters in Alabama, Tennessee, Vermont, and Oregon amended their state constitutions so forced prison labor would no longer be allowed. In Florida, State Representative Diane Hart felt encouraged by those votes. Alabama's a red state, and if they can do it, surely we can do it here in Florida. She thought she had momentum. She had tried to pass such an anti-slavery bill last year in the state house to no avail. And so did state Senator Bobby Powell, who was also encouraged that anti-slavery measures had passed in other states. Hart and Powell in November say they would refile the bill in this year's legislative session. I do believe this is something that we've got in the pipeline and there's a good probability that I'll file this legislation again this year. That was in the fall. But now, just as this year's legislative session is underway, Powell and Hart, who are both black Democrats, decided not to move forward with their bill. In the statement, Hart cited the recent attacks on black history by Governor Ron DeSantis as the reason. In January, DeSantis defended his decision to reject parts of an AP course in African-American studies and revved up the culture war. Florida is where woke goes to die. Several leaders within the multi-ethnic black community say DeSantis's bullhorn surrounding culture wars and race issues has made it difficult for legislators, especially black leaders, to move an anti-slavery bill through the committees in the legislature. The bills had support from white Democrats, but no Republican co-sponsors. And Republicans do hold a supermajority in Florida State House. Sharon Austin is professor of political science at the University of Florida. She says the political climate of fear in the state is real. The governor likes to retaliate against people who either criticize him or do anything that he opposes. And so I think that's a part of it is just not wanting to be retaliated against 
or targeted. Austin says the governor's anti-diversity efforts and the elimination of two black congressional districts highlight the lack of political power of Democrats. Austin notes black voters are a big concern and points to the fact that only 40 percent of black registered voters turned out in last year's election and contributed to DeSantis's landslide victory. I think a lot of people, especially in the African-American community, are not satisfied with the things that he's doing. But if you didn't vote, you basically have yourself to blame because you can't complain about the things that he's doing if you are not willing to vote. Republican leaders in the Florida legislature did not respond to requests for comment on the anti-slavery bill. Meanwhile, realizing the political climate, Democrat Diane Hart said she will instead focus on legislation with a greater chance of creating positive change in her community. For NPR News, I'm Wilkin Brutus in Miami. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Coming up tonight on Marketplace, the pandemic put a spotlight on the lack of broadband across tribal lands. In response, the government invested billions into closing the gap. Don't let a good emergency go to waste, right? I don't know that we would have gotten the foundational dollars had COVID not happened. Now the issue is finding materials and labor for the job. Marketplace starts at 6.30. And tomorrow on WBUR, a report from the Labor Department is expected to show the U.S. job market is cooling off, while the unemployment rate remains at a 50-year low. Details tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy here at 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, cloudy, breezy tonight. The chance of showers lows about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny and dry. Some gusty winds. Highs should be about 56 degrees. Then it should drop to the 40s over the weekend, but at least it'll be sunny. Bright skies both Saturday and Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Exclusion U, a film about the controversy over Ivy League admissions and endowments. World premiere in Cambridge, April 17th. Registration at exclusionletteru.com. One half of the electronic music duo Daft Punk, Thomas Bongotier, says he found creative tension in contrasts and oppositions. Very sweet things and very and very violent things going from one thing to another. Now Bongotier brings that tension to orchestral works. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Our next guest won an NBA title in 2014 and led his national team to an Olympic medal in Tokyo. I like to introduce myself 
as Paddy Mills, uh, Gugura Nagiagal, and Dawara Meriam Man of Australia. Paddy Mills is a point guard now on the Brooklyn Nets and an Indigenous Australian. You have the Aboriginal people and you have the Torres Strait Island people. And I'm very proud to be both of those. Basketball also runs in the family. His uncle, Danny Morsu, represented Australia twice at the Olympics, and his parents started a basketball club for indigenous kids in the capital city of Canberra. Naturally, Paddy Mills came up through that club. And that turned into, um, you know, a much deeper, deeper deal. Meaning he's now in his 13th season in the NBA. But we wanted to talk to him about the basketball league he started in 2020 for indigenous kids across his country. Indigenous Basketball Australia operates in eight regions and hosts a tournament for the best players from each one. When we spoke this week, he said he'd always wanted to build on what his parents had started. He just thought it'd be after his professional career was over. And then in 2020, something awful happened, and and that was COVID, which left a lot of people in lockdown quarantine. So me and my wife dragged the mattress out into the lounge room um, Mm -hmm. and got to work to create Indigenous Basketball Australia. A lot of people use the downtime from the pandemic to, you know, do a little more cooking or finally remodel the bathroom. You decided to create a a basketball league for your people. Yeah, well, it's obviously something that's um, close to my heart, something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. I'm I'm the third Indigenous Australian to represent Australia, and that was 30 years after Uncle Danny Morsu represented Australia. So I guess my biggest fear is that there's another 30 years, you know, or so for the next Indigenous Australian to represent Australia at those major events. So um, I I just think it's one of those things, right, where it it ends up coming easy to you when, um, you know, the organisation is founded on on culture you know we celebrate culture and everything we do so we have a lot of programs from inspiration and motivational sessions being able to teach these kids about um, identity about health and wellness about school about their culture and even this year they've learned a song and a dance from their region in their language um, before they pick up a basketball so we try to really you know drive identity and, and culture within these kids, obviously using basketball as as a vehicle. You know, I've got to ask, how do you manage juggling this with your day job as a professional basketball player in the NBA from, from halfway across the world? Yeah, it's, it's obviously um, not usual, I think, but um, my days off have turned into um, pretty full, full days uh-huh. with IBA. You know, we finish a game and get home about 10, 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and that's prime time to have a chat with someone back in Australia. Um, but at the end of the day, this work with IBA fuels my fire and fuels my passion to continue do, to do what I'm doing on the basketball court and, and continue to, you know, want to achieve more um, specific, specifically for these kids and my people. Have you actually managed to attend uh, one of these youth tournaments in person or has your time in the NBA made that hard to do? That's that's a great question, mate. Um, IBA uh, was created in 2020, and we are now in our third year, and I have yet to attend one single IBA event. So wow. Everything's run from uh, across the world, but hopefully one day I'll be able to get there um, and and you know be be present. Well, uh, a big part of your goal with the league seems to be to give you know kids an opportunity to participate in youth sports and to find community and culture and basketball. But I imagine you also want to 
develop players with, with potential to go professional. What do you want this league to do for those kids who've got huge talent that, that maybe you didn't have access to yourself as a kid? Yeah, definitely, mate. There's a lot of deep layers that we're targeting with IBA. Mm. And so, you know, our kids being involved in, in the program um, already eliminates, you know, a lot of problems that we have with our kids and, and community. So getting them in a safe environment that's free from discrimination, letting them dream, letting them understand that goal setting is a thing and that things can come true. This is much bigger than than just basketball. Um, this is about their identity to be able to live in a modern world in Australia as a young Aboriginal or as a young Torres Strait Islander kid, um, but also the the thought of an opportunity to have them play basketball for Australia at a home Olympic Games, Brisbane 2032, home crowd cheering for them. You know, that's something that really probably excites me more than, than myself playing for Australia is, is just, you know, having that opportunity for kids. So you know, we're just providing an opportunity in hopes that that, that dream can come true. Well, for now, uh, Patty Mills is a point guard for the Brooklyn Nets and a founder of Indigenous Basketball Australia. Patty Mills, thanks for coming on to talk with us about your project. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks for having me. If you've ever played the board game The Settlers of Catan, it is time to raise a hexagonal tile to the memory of Klaus Teuber. He died Saturday at age 70, and he created one of the best-selling board games of all time. NPR's Netta Ulubi has this remembrance. Catan is one of those games that's wildly addictive, but also so absurdly complicated. It was parodied on the NBC comedy Parks and Recreation. Eight to 12 players, two wizards, a maverick, the arbiter, two warriors, a corporal, and a ledgerman. Now, the ledgerman just keeps score. Hardcore fans have bought more than 40 million units of the game since the Settlers of Catan first came out in 1995. It's sold around the world in nearly 50 languages, and now there are popular video game versions as well. Inventor Klaus Teuber grew up in post-war Germany. He was a peaceful man who loved good games based on cooperation, not competition. But he was stuck working as a dental technician. And I had a lot of frustration. That's Teuber in a voiceover on NPR in 2020. Starting in the 1980s, he created board game after board game that swept up industry awards. None of them hit, though, until The Settlers of Catan. It is just a remarkable achievement in game design. Eric Arneson wrote the book How to Host a Game Night. He told NPR in 2020 that Klaus Teuber designed a civilization on a fictional island that keeps everyone involved throughout the game. The games are always quite close. Nobody ever gets eliminated. Or obliterated. You trade. You build, as Teuber told NPR in 2020. You cannot destroy someone's buildings. It's impossible. And you have to communicate. Teuber ended up being as beloved as his game. My shaman cast a Teuber spell. He was name-checked by that Parks and Recreation parody, and his fans wrote songs in his honor and posted them on social media. Settlers of Catan. A statement from Catan Studio said Teuber died after a sudden illness. It urged people to remember him by being kind to one another and enjoying a game with those they love. Danke, Klaus, meaning thank you. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in sports and the men's Frozen Four. The semifinal game of the championship is underway in Tampa. Minnesota has just taken the lead over the Boston University Terriers. It's 2-1 Minnesota approaching the second period. Red Sox have a perfect record on the road. They played one game and won it. It happened today in Detroit, where the Sox scored four runs in the sixth inning and went on to beat the Tigers 6-3. Game two of the series is tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After two days of Israeli police raids in the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, militants fired rockets into Israel, and Israel began airstrikes in Gaza, raising fears in an escalating conflict. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, April 6th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, tensions between China and Taiwan have been on the rise in recent years, but a quiet battle is already taking place, the competition for hearts and minds. And America's largest newspaper company, Gannett, is once again forecasting it will close or sell off hundreds of local daily newspapers. So in a lot of communities, there there just aren't a lot of options. These places will become more like a news desert. More on how shuttering these newspapers will hurt communities coming up. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Protesters outside Tennessee's Republican-dominated House today as lawmakers voted to expel one lawmaker, Representative Justin Jones, and are considering similar action against two others. All were involved in a protest on the House floor following a deadly school shooting in Nashville. Representative Justin Pearson is expected to meet a similar fate. The Speaker of the House is leading an undemocratic institution. He is leading a, a political lynching of people who have already been persecuted for being women, for being black, for being young, gifted and talented. The Speaker of the House is a problem in the state of Tennessee, and he is not a, a, a dictator. He is not a god, as Representative Jones said. And yet that is the way that he is operating, With and vo- that needs to change. With the votes, Tennessee House lawmakers are essentially overriding voters in Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis, who voted for Jones, Pearson, and another lawmaker, Representative Gloria Johnson. 
Alexis Marshall from member station WPLN reports the Republican supermajority there is taking the action after House Speaker Cameron Sexton labeled the protests unacceptable. Some of those demonstrating at the State House today said they feel abandoned by their elected leaders. Among those protesting the expulsion was ninth grader Asatira X. After last week's shooting at the Covenant School, she says she's scared of going to school and shouldn't have to worry about active shooters and barricading classroom doors. She's frustrated that the legislature is punishing the representatives who voiced her concerns. I feel like it's just a big, like, middle finger to us, you know what I mean? Because it's just like, you're really eliminating these people because they're just speaking out on what they believe in. Other protesters called moves like this fascist. They say shutting down dissenting voices threatens the state's democracy. For NPR News, I'm Alexis Marshall in Nashville. Weekly unemployment claims are pointing to somewhat higher layoffs in recent weeks. NPR Scott Horsley reports on revised figures from the Labor Department. New numbers from the Labor Department show more people have been applying for unemployment benefits than previously reported. That's thanks to a change in the way the department adjusts its numbers to account for seasonal variation. The new numbers show 228,000 people applied for jobless benefits last week. That's down 18,000 from the week before. Tomorrow, the Labor Department will report on job gains for the month of March. Forecasters expect the report to show employers added fewer jobs last month than they did in February. Industry surveys point to a slower pace of hiring in the service sector and a sharper decline in manufacturing. The slowdown comes as the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Stocks eked out modest gains on Wall Street today. The Dow closed up two points. The Nasdaq rose 91 points. The S&P was up 14 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former chair of the Methuen City Council, who was also hired as a city police officer, is facing public corruption charges. Today, Sean Fountain pleaded not guilty to eight charges, including conspiracy and forgery. Fountain allegedly faked documents to make it appear he was qualified to be a police officer. He was hired by former police chief Joseph Solomon. A new city commission investigation concluded Solomon operated a corrupt department. Boston-based DraftKings has lost its bet to offer sports wagering on this year's Boston Marathon. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission today voted down the company's request to let people bet on the event. Race organizers said they were concerned an approval with less than two weeks to the race would give them insufficient time to assess how wagering could potentially influence the marathon. Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein says it was important to consider those concerns. One of the very critical components of our approving events is to make sure that the governing body can ensure the integrity of the event for purposes of outcome and betting. DraftKings wanted to let people wager on the winning times and athletes from a list of top competitors. Boston is receiving the largest award it's ever been granted from the federal government to help people who are experiencing homelessness. The $42 million from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development will go to 14 nonprofits to help people find and pay for housing. The mayor's office says last year the city housed more than 2,400 people who were experiencing homelessness. On Beacon Hill, physician assistants are asking lawmakers to keep in place a pandemic-era policy that gives the assistants more authority to work without supervision. When the state's public health emergency ends next month, the PAs will again have to be paired with a supervising physician. There's a bill in the legislature to continue to allow physician assistants to make more treatment decisions as one way to address the shortage of health care workers. 
And rescuers on Cape Cod are desperately searching for an endangered right whale with rope caught in her mouth and twisted around her body. The Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown said today its response team managed to remove 100 feet of rope from the entanglement on Tuesday in the waters off Wellfleet. This was the second attempt to help the whale within the past week. A tracking buoy fell off the mammal and that still has rope around her, so now rescuers will need to rely on an aerial search to find her once again. In the forecast, overcast skies tonight, maybe a few showers, lows about 47. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, topping out in the mid-50s. And then for the weekend, mainly sunny both Saturday and Sunday, breezy and cooler, only about 48, 49 degrees for a high. 59 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. For two days in a row, Israeli police have raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Israel says they were going after Palestinians stockpiling rocks and fireworks. Scenes circulated around the region showing police using batons to beat people inside one of Islam's holiest sites. Soon, militants fired rockets into Israel. A few came from Gaza, many more from Lebanon. And that's important. We'll get to it in a moment. The region is on edge. Violence is expected to continue. The question is on what scale? NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us from Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Adrian. Can you explain how all of this has snowballed from a crisis in Jerusalem to a, to a crisis on multiple fronts? Yeah, well, Ramadan and Passover happened to coincide this year. And there was a fringe Jewish group that was calling to revive this biblical tradition of a Passover goat sacrifice at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. This is an ancient site. It's revered in Islam, but also in Judaism. And Palestinian activists were gathering overnight at the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, to defend it from this uh, fringe group. Israeli police then raided the mosque to to break up the group of activists, and sparks were literally flying inside the mosque. Uh, Palestinians had had stockpiled fireworks; they were setting off fireworks, and Israeli police repeatedly hit and beat Palestinians who were on the carpeted mosque floor. And this was caught on video, and it spread on social media throughout the Middle East and sparked a lot of anger. Israel is actually blaming Hamas, the Hamas militia in Gaza, for, for helping spread these images on social media and trying to ignite tension and violence. Uh, so we saw militants in Gaza then fire rockets onto Israel's south. What's unusual here, though, is that uh, militants in Lebanon also fired a few dozen rockets on Israel's north. So Israel is now facing threats on both its southern and northern borders. Uh, Tell us more about the significance of rocket fire from Lebanon and, and who was behind that. It is significant. This was the biggest rocket barrage from Lebanon to Israel since the two countries fought a devastating war in 2006. And just imagine the scene, Israelis celebrating Passover, air raid sirens go off in northern Israel. Um, There are a lot of social media videos of this, people watching Israel's anti-rocket battery shooting down these rockets midair. Have a listen. Now, Israel is saying that Palestinian militants in Lebanon 
were responsible for firing these rockets and that Hamas has orchestrated this. Uh, but that something of this scope, uh, you know, so many rockets, a couple dozen of them flying out of Lebanon into Israel, that the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah would have to have been aware of this. Now, that's important uh, because Israel is considering who is responsible. Um, is Hamas it there? Is it Hezbollah? Is it also possibly Iran involved? Remember, Israel has been stepping up its bombing campaign against Iranian targets in Syria. The significance of these rockets, you know, are symbolic there was no one killed. Uh, the rockets were mostly intercepted. Not a major military threat. It's a lot more about sending a message. Uh, Israeli officials think that this may have been a premeditated attempt by uh, Israel's enemies trying to take advantage of Israel at a moment of weakness when this country has been consumed with uh, months of protests, major controversy over the government's plans to weaken the judiciary, to change Israel's system of checks and balances. Military reservists have even been threatening not to serve um, protesting this move. And so some here in Israel worry that, uh, that the country looks uh, divided now and a perfect time for Israel's enemies to, to act. What might be the calculations that Israel's leaders uh, and the militants make as they uh, take action in the next hours or days? Well, Israeli security chiefs have met. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will make those militants who fired the rockets pay a price. Israel will be considering who is responsible here. Is it Hamas, Hezbollah? Is it even Iran? Uh, Israel has been striking Iranian targets a lot more lately in Syria. Now, Israel does not want to be dragged out into an all-out war. Uh, it says it wants to reestablish deterrence. Uh, the militants, for their part, also don't want an all-out war, but they also don't want to back down. We are already hearing from the Israeli military that they've begun airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. We're going to have to see how much uh, things escalate from here. I've been speaking with NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen has left the U.S. after meeting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Her visit, which was officially called a, quote, transit, triggered warnings from Beijing. That has put residents of a strip of small islands belonging to Taiwan, but just miles from China's mainland, at the center of these growing tensions again. NPR's Emily Fang and John Ruich bring you this story and a warning. You will hear sounds of gunshots. Local Taiwanese politician Tsai Ji-yong still remembers when his home on Kinmen Island was a battleground. When I was a child, I experienced China and Taiwan bombarding each other on alternating days, and you had to take cover in bomb shelters. War is really merciless. The shelling stopped in the late 1970s. Kinmen has since been demined of remaining explosives, though Taiwan still maintains a military presence on the islands. You can hear behind me the crack of artillery practice, which is just a reminder that even though a lot of troops already left Kinmen, some of it's still an active military base because of its proximity to China. But it's also a popular tourist site these days. Yet, because of rising tensions with China, the threat of war now feels very real, again. COVID shut down the ferry connections between China's Xiamen and Taiwan's Kinmen. And then, with the media reporting on the war in Ukraine, us Kinmen residents can't help but think about previous battles and bombardment from China. We're really afraid we'll face war again. This is Kinmen native and opposition party politician Chen Yanghu. He thinks the only way to avoid conflict with China is to strengthen economic ties. That's why this year he proposed to turn his hometown into a demilitarized zone 
kind of like the Korean DMZ, the strip of neutral space between North and South Korea. 是是，就是特经济特区的一个概念，就像厦门是经济特区嘛，然后这样两个。That way, both sides have equal status. Only that way can you gradually build up a space for shared livelihood and perhaps even joint administration of both kinmen and China's shaman, so the two can be more connected to develop and protect kinmen. Chin holds a Taiwanese passport, but he proudly tells me he sees himself as culturally Chinese. Kinmen residents own 20 to 30,000 houses in China. Because of family and ethnic ties on both sides, we already feel like one big family. None of this sits well with Taipei, where the ruling political party, the DPP, is highly suspicious of China. Here's DPP politician Chen Xianzhong in Kinmen. Taiwan would have to remove troops from Kinmen if we had a DMZ. But even if China agreed to remove proportional amounts of troops on its side, that would still leave Kinmen vulnerable. Controversy over the DMZ proposal reflects Taiwan's fraught identity politics. Most residents in Kinmen advocate for much closer ties with China because of a shared cultural identity. But that's not how most people in Taiwan feel. About two thirds say in the latest poll that they feel Taiwanese, not Chinese. But these nuances fade just offshore in Chinese waters, where my colleague John Ruwich is on a tour boat. In the background there, you can see an island, which is run by Taiwan, administered by the Taiwanese government. It's just a couple of miles off the coast of China. We're on a tourist boat now, and you can see it in the background there. There are daily tours from China. It only takes about a half hour to get within a few hundred meters of Taiwan-controlled territory. People like Luo Guangmin travel from deep inside China for a look. Kinmen Island is so close to the mainland. Why hasn't it been reunited with us sooner? Wang Yueyun from Southwest China is part of the same tour group. We think the country should reunite because we are all Chinese. If we reunite, it will lead to a good life under our party's care. Despite the rising tension across the Taiwan Strait, back on land in China, there are still plenty of people from Taiwan looking for opportunity. Lai Lai was born and raised in Taiwan and moved to Xiamen nearly six years ago for work. Actually, after coming to Xiamen, I realized, eh, it's pretty similar to Taiwan. They speak the same language, which I can understand. The pace of life is similar too, she says. In Xiamen, Lai is taking part in one of many programs backed by the Chinese government to attract Taiwanese youth and win them over. The one she's at is like an incubator for cultural products, stuff like T-shirts or coffee mugs with cool designs. And she's come to the conclusion that the future for Taiwan is with China. Actually, the environment in Taiwan has really been shrunk down to something quite small. So if you don't seize the opportunity to do things with the mainland, you'll just be stuck in Taiwan. Lai says her family doesn't get it, and she thinks they've been misled by the media. They even told her not to come home over Lunar New Year a few months ago because they were afraid of the coronavirus after China dropped all its restrictions and she tested positive. She says she had not been back for three years, and it hurt when they told her she should stay away. For Lai Lai, Xiamen is now a kind of home away from home. She's even written songs about it, which she and her colleagues sing. 
舟上回到家，那样的安心，真美。I actively have called upon my friends in Taiwan to come to the mainland to visit, walk around, check things out for three or four days, and you'll see that things are different from what you imagined. Kinmen across the water and shamen were front lines for past battles. Now they're the front line in China's battle for hearts and minds in Taiwan. I'm John Ruich in Xiamen, China. And Emily Fang in PR News, Kinmen, Taiwan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace, new vehicles are increasingly out of reach for Americans as minimum prices soar to $25,000 and SUVs are sold for $60,000 or more. We'll take a look at what's happened to the car market. Marketplace starts at 630 we're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Stocks ended the day higher, but just barely for the Dow. It was nearly flat. S&P rose more than one-third percent. The Nasdaq grew by three-quarters percent. Number of people seeking unemployment benefits in the state is rising. The Department of Labor reports that last week more than 15,000 people in the state filed initial claims for unemployment. That's up 8 percent from the week before. The rise reflects a national trend. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. In sports, the Red Sox got back in the win column this afternoon. They beat the Detroit Tigers 6-3 in the Sox' first road game of the season. And in the final four nationally semifinals right now in the second period, Boston University's men's hockey team is tied with Minnesota 2-2. And fans of Celtics star Jason Tatum may not have his fancy footwork, but they can wear his sneakers, sort of. Tomorrow, Nike will start selling his signature basketball sneaker, Tatum 1. The design features animal prints inspired by trips with his son to the zoo. Sneaker prices range from $55 to $120. Cloudy skies overnight tonight, down about 47 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, topping out in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. The country's largest newspaper company, Gannett, is once again forecasting it will sell off more of its daily newspapers. Since its merge with newspaper company Gatehouse Media in 2019, Gannett has closed or sold hundreds of papers and slashed staff by more than half, and that is projected to continue. Joshua Benton has been writing about this for the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and he joins me now. Welcome. Good to be with you. Joshua, Gannett had 25,000 employees at the end of 2019, and uh, less than four years later, it has just over 11,000. It slashed staff by more than half. I mean, newspaper revenue has been steadily declining over that time, but not by that much, not at that rate. So what's going on here? 
The Gannett that we have now is the result of the merger of two very large companies. The idea was an individual newspaper might struggle on its own, but if you buy enough of them, uh, you can extract as much of the, the cost of producing the newspaper from the local community as possible. You cut down on print days, you have the page layout and, and editing done elsewhere. The thought was you could achieve these economies of scale and make a profitable business. The problem is, as part of the merger, uh, Gannett took on a lot of debt, and they have to pay off that debt. So they need revenue, and the way that they have been doing that is by cutting costs uh, to the bone. That means cutting staff and cutting the quality of their newspapers. I guess it goes without saying that print circulation of newspapers has plummeted in recent years. It's been on the decline for decades, actually. Uh, and today, most people get their news online. Is it just the case that these Gannett newspapers aren't managing to get people who used to subscribe to their print paper to subscribe to their digital product instead? Yeah, newspapers have generally given up on the idea of creating new print readers. They're not really making new print readers anymore. So the idea has been to shift to digital and, and Gannett claims some, some degree of success in doing that. But even when that does happen, uh, newspapers generally make significantly less money off of a digital subscriber than they do from a print subscriber. Um, the other problem is that there are lots of other free alternatives for a lot of local news and information, and uh, people will be happy to consume those without bothering to subscribe to the local daily. You write in the Neiman Journalism Lab that uh, in the last few years, Gannett had 563 newspapers and today has fewer than 400. Uh, many of these are newspapers that are serving smaller cities and towns. So what does it mean for these communities when their newspapers are sold or closed, or even if they're just gutted of staff. Yeah, Gannett CEO Mike Reed has said that uh, he sees the f in the future the company will be focusing on its larger newspapers in communities like Phoenix and, and Indianapolis. But Gannett owns a lot of very small newspapers, uh, a lot of weekly newspapers, a lot of very small daily newspapers. Those larger weeklies and smaller dailies are in a really tough position economically. It's very difficult to manage the cost uh, while emphasizing digital subscriptions and getting enough of them to, to make things work out. There are also communities where there often isn't as much of an alternative in terms of a local television station or a local digital news outlet that's covering the area. So in a lot of communities, there, there just aren't a lot of options, and uh, these places will become more like a news desert. You know, uh, one newspaper in Eugene, Oregon, the Register Guard, was uh, locally owned by a family in Eugene until 2018 when it sold to Gatehouse, and which was then merged into Gannett. And in that time, the, the newsroom has gone from uh, over 40 employees to what on its current staff listing is seven uh, it's really hard to run a robust newsroom when you have seven people working in your newsroom. At the end of the day, Gannett is a business. Most newspapers are businesses with a mission to inform the public, yes, but also driven by profit motive. So do you see any solutions here for the uh, local communities that are being left behind in these sort of information deserts? I think it is very difficult to manage the transition from a print daily to an effective digital news outlet. It's often much easier to start from scratch. It's not happening everywhere, but there are communities across the country where smart digital outlets are uh, growing to the point where in some cases they have bigger newsrooms than the local daily newspaper does. It is possible, but it, it's a challenge. What do you see in the future of local news? I see a lot more uncovered city council meetings. I see a lot more uh, corruption that uh, doesn't get noticed. I see a lot more uninformed voters. More people who take their cues for how they view their government from national media and the politicized uh, world there as opposed to their local government. There, there certainly are bright spots. There are green shoots going up. But the challenge is just very difficult. 
I've been speaking with Joshua Benton. He's a senior writer at the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard University. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. The movie Joyland was the first Pakistani film ever to play at the Cannes Film Festival. It was also Pakistan's entry in this year's Oscar race for Best International Feature. But even as it was being celebrated outside Pakistan, it was banned in its home country for being un-Islamic and, quote, containing objectionable material. The ban has mostly been lifted, and the movie has proved popular where it's been allowed to play. Critic Bob Mondello says deservedly so. That's not Header is playing blind man's buff with his nieces when we meet him, covered in a sheet, which makes him look like a ghost. And he might as well be one, since nobody in the household pays him much attention. His conservative father has no use for him. His alpha male brother and ever-pregnant sister-in-law, they're trying for a son, put up with him because they need stay-at-home help for those nieces. Even Heather's wife, Mumtaz, values him less as a potential father of sons than as a spouse who's okay with her having a job. In an extended Muslim family where gender stereotypes rule, Heather not being employed and Mumtaz being employed makes them both outsiders and therefore allies. Until a friend tells Heather of a job in a club at the Joyland Amusement Park. He'd be on stage behind a glamorous trans female performer named Biba, gyrating and quick-stepping as a backup dancer. And though Hedder's got about as much rhythm as a lamppost, he goes for it and gets it. And then, knowing his family will disapprove, he lies about what the job is. Theater manager. This lie and the actual job that goes with it will have consequences, the most immediate being that if he's working, then Mumtaz will have to stay home to care for the kids. But a slower-burning consequence is that Biba, who Alina Khan plays as fiery and outspoken, both on and off stage, kindles something in Ali Janejo's hater, who is eager to please and soft-spoken. She coaches him until his dancing is no longer embarrassing, and he's soon following her around like a puppy, admittedly a useful puppy, one night when an electrical short breaks up her lip-syncing act. He remembers a game he played with his nieces, gets patrons to aim their cell phone flashlights, and wouldn't you know, Biba's sequins sparkling in dimmer light makes her act more persuasive. By this time, Hader's seeing a lot of Biba in dimmer light, and that has consequences too. Director Saim Sadiq bathes the story in the intense colors of South Asian fabrics and teases out themes of gender and sexuality in a world where social rigidity constrains everyone, even Hader's dad, who's ashamed to admit he likes the attentions of a neighboring widow. The filmmaker isn't lecturing or pointing fingers in Joyland. He's just orchestrating situations where relationships can flow to unexpected places, sometimes in tartly funny ways, sometimes in hauntingly sad ones, always in ways that encourage viewers to prize tolerance for the wayward meanderings of desire. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A nice evening, still pretty mild, 59 degrees in Boston. Clouds should thicken tonight, could have some showers, lows about 47. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, topping out in the mid-50s. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. 
Violation explores America's opaque parole system through the decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a dynamic career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. GRE not required and state licensure eligible. Now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu.